I'll be doing the reading from Genesis 50, starting at verse 15 all the way to the end, which is verse 26. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, and he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up and out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, your word this morning. Pray that you speak through Paul, give him the words to say, but Lord, we also pray that you give us humbled hearts and softened hearts ready to listen. In your name, Lord. Amen. If you're visiting with us, uh, again, welcome. Uh, I'm always so thankful when people go on holidays or take a break that they don't take a break from meeting with the Lord's people. And uh, so uh, if you're visiting uh, here on Sunday because you're camping somewhere or whatnot, welcome. Uh, here we are at the end of a series. I don't like these times of uh, preaching because you just feel like you're getting warmed up and you're just wrapping your head around the material and uh, you got to leave it. Uh, this has been such a timely um, need in my own life. Uh, March the 10th we started and uh, I didn't realize how much God needed to teach me and speak to my own heart as we worked our way through this particular um, portion of scripture. One of the things that have struck me over the last a uh, number of couple of weeks as I've just had a little bit more time to lounge around and think. Uh, one particular moment, it sort of hit me as I was, uh, I can't remember what I was doing, I was in my den or, or whatnot, and there was a song that was playing, and I just read some scripture, and then a whole bunch of different words of the Bible were flowing in and out of my head, and I thought, Paul, this is the language of heaven. And I thought, there's a title of a book, The Language of Heaven. Do you know, as God's people, we have the privilege of being taught and coming to understand a language that millions of people have never heard. It's the language of the gospel. It's words that people don't understand. It's content that they've never had filled out for them. And if you're a Christian, a follower of God, and you have a Bible, when you read it, you are reading a very, very privileged language. And I just was overwhelmed with the mercy of God of allowing me to learn this language and begin to understand it. There's three words I want us to focus on as we sort of wrap up our time together in this text. Um, they're all um, 
words that are part of the language of heaven. Uh, one word is pardon, another word is providence, and the final word is promise. And uh, it does bring us, I think, to a fitting conclusion of this uh, time in the book of Genesis. The first is simply uh, a pardon that assures us. A pardon that assures us. The family is now making their way back to Egypt. They had gone to Canaan to bury their father, to bury Jacob, and, and now they're on their way back to where their own families and flocks are. And we wonder in our heads, how might the loss of the authoritative, restraining father impact the cohesion of the family? I've heard and I've witnessed, uh, once I heard it, I started watching for it, often when a father dies in a family. It's a time of unsettledness, a time of restlessness, and particularly for men, the loss of their father is a significant thing because that sort of authority figure, that restraining figure, that one that can still speak in their life is gone. And for some men, that becomes a period of great rebellion and testing. So nonetheless, here we have Jacob, the father figure who is gone. And we wonder now, well, if things are ever going to unravel, now is the time they're going to unravel because he's out of the picture. And as we see, that was happening. Some of the brothers were becoming undone. We don't know which of them, but they were becoming undone. And they were saying to themselves, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he's certainly going to repay us for all the wrong that we have caused him. Yeah, what if Joseph is bearing that grudge against us and he pays us back for all of the wrongs we did him? This seems to come out of nowhere. They've been at peace for 17 years as a family that's been reunited. And out of nowhere, as they're making their way back to Egypt, Joseph's brothers begin to fret and fear. We think, well, what's going on? What, what goes through our heads? We think to ourselves, well, has Joseph really just been kind to them as a show? Has it all been a farce? Has he been doing this for his father's sake? Had he, like Esau, been nursing this grudge that as soon as his father died, he was going to go and he was going to kill Jacob? So we wonder, had, had Joseph really been nursing a grudge for 17 years, just waiting for an opportunity to take revenge on his brothers once the father was dead? After all, this restraining influence, as I said, is lifted. There's no more constraint now. There's no more father figure. All the bets are off about what Joseph is going to do. And what amazes me is that the moment the father died, all of a sudden, this, this fear and shame and guilt begin to well up in the hearts of the brothers again. Shame sort of overtook them. Fear closed in on their thinking. Their past sin reared its ugly head again in their hearts and they began to be overwhelmed with fear. So much so that they couldn't even meet Joseph face to face. And so under the pretense or guise of their father's instruction, it says that they sent a message to Joseph. We see the family dysfunction still hasn't gone away, but they sent this message to him. And, and you think, what do you make of their claim? Your father commanded you. I was surprised by actually how many people believe that Jacob had actually written a note or had given a command to the brothers to speak to Joseph. I don't see that anywhere in the text. I, I don't think that's true. I, I think they fabricated this story as a way to once again um, make sure that Joseph wouldn't take it out on them and so they put it on their father. And notice how when they make this known to Joseph, they say to him, your father. 
as though the weight of that relationship has to bear on how he's going to respond to their fear and their worry. They clearly had staked their own future in Jacob's future. They say, we are the servants of the God of your father. And it's very clear that as they had written this letter, fabricated or not, that in it, it's their full confession. Once again, after 17 years, they feel it necessary to fully confess their sin before Joseph. It's fascinating. Uh, if you look at the words that are used here in this one single verse, we cover the semantic range of sin in the Old Testament. This is the only time in the Old Testament where these three words for sin are found in the same verse. It's three standard words for sin. They begin by simply saying, would you please forgive us? That's a way of them saying to him, would you bear away, would you lift our guilt and shame from us? And then they, they outline their sin before him. They say, would you forgive our transgression? Transgression is a revolt or it's a, it's, a, it's a rebellion against a standard. It's a breach of a relationship. And so when you read transgression in the Old Testament, normally it's this word which means to rebel or revolt against the standard of God. Sometimes we sin in revolt against God. We say, I don't really give a rip, God, about what you say. We have our own ways. We have our own rules. We have our own guidelines. And I'm going to do what I'm going to do. We revolt against the standard. And so their first is a confession. We revolted against the standard of God. The second word that they use is they say their sin. This is the most general word for sin in the Old Testament. It means to miss the mark or to fall short. It's like if you have a target and you miss the bullseye, you've fallen short of that. And so whenever we sin, another way of describing that is we fall short of what it is that God has for us. And so they are confessing that in their sin against Joseph, they fell short of what God expected them to do as brothers and as followers of God. The final one is they simply said, we did evil. Ra'ah. That's a word that's often said in contrast to good. So you'll go to the Garden of Eden and you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they are confessing what we did was not good. We did evil. Uh, towards you and in front of God. So evil distorts the good standard of God. And so they came clean. Once again, or probably for the first time with such clarity, they came clean before Joseph. I really don't think there's much hope for us to make progress with God if we will never identify and confess our sin. There's a lot of words, there's a whole language in the culture in which we live, um, in which we live that tries to articulate our sin in ways that doesn't call it sin. And until you face up to the reality that our relationship with God is affected by our sin, you will never become right with God. And so there's this confession that is necessary in their sinfulness. We need to call our actions what they are. Transgressions against the standard of God. Missing the mark of God for our lives. Evil instead of good. And it's not just a thing that we do once in our lives we, I think as a church, we need to be reminded of the ongoing daily need of the discipline of repentance. Uh, sometimes we think that repentance is something we do the first time we put our trust and faith in God. We confess our sins and we're forgiven and are, they're washed away by the blood of Christ and we're done. Do not sin after that? I, I sin on a daily basis, probably an hourly basis in thought, word, or deed. 
And I, uh, I am convinced that the Bible uh, tells us that repentance should be part of our daily walk with God. Whether we do it in the morning or in the afternoon or as we fall asleep at night, we just go before God and we just confess to him those things that the Spirit of God brings before us. The way that we have revolted against God. The way that we have missed the mark of God for us in our homes or in our jobs that week. The way we have done evil instead of good. It's just a daily practice of cleansing our lives before God. It's not that we get re-saved. It's just that the work of sanctification is ongoing in our lives. Do you notice what happens when they do this? Notice what, Joseph, what, what Joseph's reaction is. It says, Joseph wept. How they had misread their brother. For 17 years, they had doubted his affection, his goodness, his love, his forgiveness, and they had believed a lie that they had made up in their heads and their hearts against him. And Joseph was so struck and so in anguish because they had so misread him, so mistrusted him that he wept. I was fascinated by that phrase, and so I, I, I took the exact form of that word and I put it in my search program, and I looked up every instance of the word had wept is used. Now, it's used in a, a number of different ways, but this particular form of it is only used of men with the exception of once where it says all the people wept before the king. Phrases like he wept aloud, or he sought a place to weep, or he wept for a good while describe intensely emotional expressions that flowed from these men. It was such a natural response to joy or to pain or to sorrow or to sin that they just wept before God or wept before others. Esau wept, Joseph wept, Jacob wept, Joash wept, Hezekiah wept, David wept, Elisha wept. And I thought to myself, why don't we men weep anymore? Why have we so suppressed our emotions that, that we think weeping is a sign of weakness? rather than a, a sign of affection or a sign of pain or a sign of reunion? Why do we so suppress our emotions that maybe inside we're weeping, but we can't let it out of our mouths and out of our bodies? I don't think it's a sign of weakness for a man to weep. In fact, I think it's probably a sign of strength. Nonetheless, it's just a side note for me to allow myself to be move deeply not only inside but outside and there, there may be times when we are such joy in a situation that we just wrap our arms around one another and we weep or you greet your you greet your daughter when she comes back from eight months away at school at the airport and you don't just kind of give her a hug on the back but you weep for joy because she's home joseph wept and then listen to his words these are fascinating words this is just another glimpse into an aspect of forgiveness one of the realities of this story is it's a story about forgiveness listen to what joseph says to his brothers do not fear for am i in the place of god what a statement 
This lets us into the mind of Joseph. It gives us insight into how he was able to forgive his brothers. It gives us insight into his view of God. It informs me what forgiveness looks like and how it is that I can forgive another person who so strongly wrongs me. And there are few things in life that will help us more than to admit we're not God. And the unwillingness to forget some, forgive somebody is saying, I'm God. That's really what you're saying. I know better. I know your circumstances. I know your heart. I know what caused you to do that. And because I know so much, I'm not going to forgive you. Vengeance is mine, saith Paul. That's not true, though, is it? What's the Bible say? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You see... Our task is forgiveness. Our task is to trust in the character and the righteousness and the knowledge of God. You and I are not omniscient. At least I'm not. I don't know the motives. I don't know the circumstances. I don't know what brought to bear on the reason why that person did what they did to me. I don't know that. They could be justified for all I know. They could be totally unjustified for all I know. But God knows every bit of that. He's omniscient. And so my responsibility, my task, when I am wronged, is to not play God, but to simply say, I forgive you, and leave the rest to God. See, vengeance is God's prerogative. It's God's concern. Don't repay anyone evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. See, Joseph understood that reality. And in a way, he was saying, if you are afraid of anyone, be afraid of God. Joseph wept aloud, and it's as if he said, Don't be afraid of me, for although your father has died, the God of your father, on account of whom I will never strike you, is still alive. Don't fear me. I've forgiven you. Fear God. And then he says, moreover, look at God's intention behind all of this. God has meant it for good. We'll come back to that in a little bit, but... He says, you know, for everything that has taken place, for all that's going on, what I'm focusing on is what God has brought about through those actions. I could have never seen this when it first happened, but as I look on it now, God has used whatever took place between us for good. You see, Joseph was not focused on the individuals. He was focused on God, who directs and guides all circumstances. Think of what would have happened if at any time Joseph had have taken it out on his brothers, wiped them out, thrown them all in prison, destroyed their lives, because he could have. He had all that kind of power. What would that have meant for the family of Jacob? Years ago, long, long time ago, as I was wrestling with forgiveness, uh, I was having a conversation with an individual, and he summarized forgiveness this way. And I, I think it's helpful. I don't think it's the only way to look at it, and it's broader than this. But it really says when, when you say you forgive somebody, what that means is you say to yourself, I will not bring it up in my mind. I will not bring it up with you, and I, not, I will not bring it up with anybody else, ever. That's what forgiveness means. Forgiveness doesn't mean you forget. God doesn't forget, does he? But he casts it behind his back. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. And so for you, when you and I choose to forgive somebody, what we are saying is, I will never, ever bring that up in my mind again. 
I will never bring that up with you again. And I will never bring that up in a conversation with anybody else again, even as an example. And I think this is what Joseph daily learned to do. Paul is really clear. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. He's speaking to Christians here. He's speaking to the people of God at Ephesus. Get rid of it all. Rather, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We need to learn this again and again at PFBC. That God would help us get rid of malice and anger, clamor, hatred. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving of one another. But you know, this account of the family of Jacob is a picture of a far greater pardon that you and I need to understand. Notice how Joseph reassures his brother in the final act of this scene in verse 21. He says, Do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That last word is particularly gentle. He spoke tenderly or kindly to them. It means to speak to the heart so as to affect the heart and the feelings of the heart. It's not just expressing comfort and kindness, but it's seeking to persuade the heart through your kind words to a relationship of love again. It's this beautiful sort of picture that we have of Joseph as he's talking with them that he's trying to win their hearts over. He's given up on their minds, but now he's trying to get a hold of their hearts and say, listen, I forgive you. I love you. We're in this together. God is good to us. These same two words are used together only one other place that I'm aware of in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 40, where God is forgiving Israel. Comfort, comfort. There's that same word that Joseph heard. Comfort, comfort, oh my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to the Jerusalem. This is God speaking tenderly to the heart of his people. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Have you ever fallen into the trap of Joseph's brothers? We doubt God's forgiveness and pardon. Another circumstance comes up in our lives, and all our confidence goes out the window, and we say to ourselves, surely he can't forgive that. Surely he won't forgive that. Surely God must be nursing a grudge against me for that skeleton in my closet. And we, we fall once again into our sin and our conscience screams at us, there's certainly no forgiveness for you now, Paul. And we're just waiting for the moment that God whacks us. So we can say, I knew he never really forgive me. I knew he's holding a grudge against me. Loved ones, God does not hold grudges. And if you are forgiven in Christ Jesus, you are forgiven. And if you are justified, the Bible says you are at peace with God. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Rest in the forgiveness of God. Find peace in the forgiveness of God. Be confident in the forgiveness of God. Don't be afraid. Let go of the lies that you say to yourself that God's punishment for your sin in Christ was not enough. 
be at peace. Your sins are forgiven. They are blotted out. They are removed as far as the east is from the west. And when your conscience rises up like that, you say, get thee behind me, conscience. And rest in the promises of God's pardon. And allow the Spirit of God to speak tenderly to your heart. Secondly, there's a providence that encourages us. Why was Joseph able to forgive his brothers? It's his grounding in the character and the power and the plan and the purposes of God. We've been talking about this, and if you're just visiting, this is your first time with us, I, we just don't have time to go back over this ground, but we've been talking about how in the providence of God, we have to understand that we, this world is, is, is not just a physical world. It's not just a natural world. That, that we just don't understand this world by only what you can touch, taste, see, feel for experience. This, this world is not devoid of spiritual reality. In fact, there's a physical plane and there's a spiritual plane, and it's the spiritual plane that determines the realities of the physical plane. And so when we looked at this for the first time in chapter 45, as the, Joseph meets his brothers for the first time, he says to them, you sold me, but God sent me. Both of those are true. Joseph was sold by his brothers. But over and above it was a far greater purpose that in their selling of Joseph, God was sending Joseph ahead of them to preserve their lives. There is nothing that will help you more than to come to understand that reality in your life and in the world in which we live. And so here in chapter 50, we're, con we're confronted with the same reality. Again, two planes on which life is lived out. There's the physical human plane, and then there's the divine God-ruled plane. And Joseph doesn't skirt issues. He says to his brothers, now he puts intention there. He says, you meant it for evil. That's true, wasn't it? They were jealous of Joseph. They hated him so much that they wanted to kill him. They hated their father's favoritism of him. They also said to themselves, we're going to kill him, and now let's see what God's plan will do. Their whole intention of their heart was evil towards Joseph. That was true on the human plane. But there is a divine intention where it says, but God meant it for good. There's this bigger plane, there's this fuller plane, there's this reality that explains the physical reality on which we live. And Joseph had that focus, Joseph had that understanding. He articulates that reality that there's this another, there's another will that is at work in this world. And when we understand it, when it grasps it, as we look at the news and it's just gross, you know, you, you watch the news or you read a news feed for like two minutes or scanning, you think, wow, this world is just self-destructing. And you can either look at that in a, uh, a physical plane and just be full of anxiety, be full of worry, be full of fear, wonder what's going to happen to your kids, what's going to happen to your grandchildren, what's going to happen in the world. Or you can look at that and you can realize, but I know that God is in control, that he's guiding and directing the decisions and the plans of every leader, of every person. He knows everything that's happening every second in this world. And I can go to bed at night sure that God is in control. It's just an amazing way to deal with the realities that you and I face on a day-to-day -day level. And Joseph says to them, listen, he says, 
God had this incredible plan. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The salvation of many people. He's not just referring to the salvation of, of Jacob's family. Remember, God had, uh, had raised Joseph up, given him favor so that he became second in command of all of Egypt. And what does it say? That when the famine was great, the whole world came to them. That God's intention was to put Joseph in that place so that God could care for the whole world in the midst of that famine. We need to trust the character of God. We need to understand the power of God. We need to rest in the purposes of God. We need to understand and grip and rest in the fact that God has a plan, that God has a purpose, and it will never be thwarted. When we first started the, uh, the New Testament summary verse of this whole section of Scripture that we were looking at was Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Let me give a, a couple of words of sort of pastoral application. Now, as you think about the providence of God, ask yourself, where was it or when was it that Joseph made this statement? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The first time that Joseph articulated this truth was when he was approximately 39 years old, 22 years after he had been sold into slavery. That's when he first met his brothers when they came and they didn't know who he was and he expressed the dual realities of soul to sin. And now it would be another 17 years to the point at which we're at now where Joseph has a fuller understanding of that and he articulates it this way. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see, I very much doubt that the fullness of the purpose of God was in Joseph's mind when he was in that slave caravan being transported to Egypt. I think that what was in Joseph's heart and mind was fear. He pleaded and he begged with his brothers, don't sell me. And they ignored him. I'm sure he was anxious as he arrived and as he was stripped naked and as they sold him on that podium to Potiphar's wife. I'm sure there were all sorts of things that sort of uh, uh, filled his heart and his mind. But the thing that came to the top all the time was his understanding that the God of his father, the God of his grandfather, the father of his great-grandfather Abraham could be trusted. He didn't know what God was up to. He didn't know where God was leading, but his trust and his confidence was in God. It's difficult to say when he was accused of rape and then falsely or thrown into prison and then spend an extra two years in prison if at that point he even understood the fullness of the providence of God. I wonder if when he rose to power in Egypt he understood what God was up to. But what he did know is God could be trusted. What he did know was the promises of God were true. What he did know is that God had given him a vision about the future and that he trusted in that vision of the future. But I suspect that during those years, that picture was anything but clear. You see, what I'm getting at, loved ones, I am so happy that we have got new vocabulary as a people of God here, or refreshed our vocabulary in understanding the providence of God. But as you go through a difficult trial, as you experience some deep pain or grief, don't expect to immediately some, see some good that God may be bringing about through it. By all means, cultivate a trust in the, in the providence of God. By all means, cultivate a, a reliance on the promises of God. But don't try and force an explanation of providence 
remember that God's purposes ripen over time. And that perspective is needed. And what does perspective require? It requires distance. And it's in the distance of time that we sometimes get the insight that we finally need of something that happened years previous. And we go, of course. God, I, I see how you were working in that situation now like I never did before. So in the midst of your trial and your circumstances, and some of you may be going through some brutal stuff right now, you may not have the ability to think about or see the goodness of the providence of God in that circumstance. Just trust God for now. And maybe in 17 years, maybe in 22 years, God will give you insight into sold or sent, meant for evil or meant for good. Secondly, it's a caution to us as God's people. Be very, very careful in using a text like Genesis 50 or 45 or Romans chapter 8, verse 28, as a comfort to somebody else that is going through deep, deep, difficult waters. Don't use them lightly. Don't use them flippantly. Don't use them easily. Don't use them kind of like a Bible bazooka where you blast this verse into somebody's life and all of a sudden it's supposed to make them feel better and understand God more fully. Rather, I would probably prefer that as somebody's walking through a dark providence, you simply spend time on your knees and you say, God, would you help them? God, would you hold them? God, would you guide them? God, would you care for them? And God, maybe somewhere down the road, would you be gracious enough to allow them to see some of your plan or some of your purpose that is at work in this deep, dark providence right now? Providence that encourages us. And finally, a promise that grabs us. After Jacob died, you do the math, and it looks like Joseph lived in Egypt for another 54 years. You add it all up, and Joseph lived in his 110 years, 94 of them in Egypt. A good portion of those, he lived in the position of the second highest ruler in the land in all the privileges that that entailed. As you read the end of these verses, you clearly see that they were years full of blessing and fullness. Blessing because he lived to see his great-great-grandchildren. The Bible tells us that it is a blessing that we get to see our grandchildren. It was also years of fullness because you notice twice it tells us how old Joseph was when he died. 110 years. There's only one other person in the Bible which we know lived to that same age, and it was Joshua, 110 years. But in Egyptian culture... 110 years was understood to be the ideal lifespan. And so whether that was intended or whether that was true, I, I think there's probably something to it. But there's this reality that he lived a blessed life and he lived a full life. And yet for all of his years in Egypt, for all those years that Joseph lived in Egypt, he never became an Egyptian. He lived in Egypt, but Egypt did not live in him. That's really important, loved ones. Because what he hung on to was the promises of God. He wasn't so overwhelmed by the realities of the world in which he lived and the physical blessings that he enjoyed that 
he forgot the promises of God. He wasn't enamored by the riches of Egypt. And we saw this a few weeks back when, when he was given word that his father was dying. His concern was that he received the blessing of his father. He didn't give a rip about Egypt and all its riches and all its future. What he wanted was a future that would, have, that would come to him through the blessing of his father. And so he went with his boys to his dad and says, Dad, would you bless me? And then we read here as he's talking to his brothers, we see again that the promises of God were as a passion. He says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isn't that brilliant? Just as his great-grandfather and his grandfather and his father had lived with the promise being the focal point of their life, so Joseph now was living with that same promise. He didn't really care about Egypt and all that it had to offer. What he cared about was the promise of God and the promise of a future land. And here he even says, I'm going to die, but I'm going to die still with my eyes on that promise of God. It's beautiful how the promises of God constrained these men. And this promise that God made 200 years earlier to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, would not be fulfilled until 200 years later when they would come out of the land of Egypt once again and they would carry Joseph's bones out. God is a living God. He's, he's not just the God of Abraham and then he dies. He's not the God of Jacob and then he dies. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all of us. Take my bones. I hesitate to say this because I don't want to cause controversy. It's just my own personal view, and it's for me. I have chosen, when I die, to be buried. I have no problem with cremation. I just choose to be buried. One of the reasons, though, I want to be buried, and I've talked to Kath about this in my notes, is because I want one of the last things my kids and grandkids see, if I predecease them, I want them to hear that I believed in the promises of God. We lay this body in the grave in a sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. This is what Joseph was clinging to. He had this sure and certain conviction the promise of God would yet be fulfilled in his life. How do you pass this on to your family? It's always tough to say these things when part of your family is here. But I, I, I hope that it's true. How did... How did, how did Abraham passed this on to Isaac. Isaac passed this on to Jacob. Jacob passed this on to Joseph. I think it was just nothing extraordinary. It's just that the, the warp and the woof of those men's lives was to the best of their ability, they simply wanted to walk with God. They tried to the best of their ability to walk. We know as we looked at the family how dysfunctional and um, how nuts they were. And yet in the end of it, they came back to this desire, but I, but I walked with God. You know, God is almighty. He's the all-sufficient one. God has been my shepherd all of my days. God has encouraged me along the ways. What I need is the assurance of God's presence. What I need is to know that every day that when I get up in the morning, that God is with me and he will walk with me. And they tried to walk that out in their day-to-day -day life, that God seemed to be the one that, that they, they fought to always keep at the top. And I think, parents, that if it's your desire, above all things, to walk with God, that there's a good chance that you will pass that passion onto your children as well. To knock those idols down on a daily basis. 
to knock down the allurements and the draw of the world around you on a daisy basis and constantly strive to put God first in your life. It's fascinating as we come to the end of Exodus, isn't it? Or end of, Gen or end of Genesis. It began with creation and it ends in a conflict. We began in Eden and we end in Egypt. We began with the phrase, in the beginning, and we end with the phrase, in a coffin. It doesn't sound too hopeful, does it? But we know that's not the end of the story. Because Joseph died with the promise of God bursting from his heart and his lips. Make sure you take my bones out of here. So what do you and I as believers hang on to as death keep, creeps closer and closer in our lives? Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I hope that through the daily warp and woof of your life, there's, I hope, not a day that goes by that the promise of the return of Christ doesn't sneak into your thinking that the promise of a place prepared for you does not sneak into your thinking. It might not be there in all its fullness, but that that is the promise that of all things drives you, sustains you, corrects you. That it's the promises of God that grab you as you get closer and closer to seeing Jesus. So let the language of heaven grip you today. Pardon, providence, promise. Father, we thank you for your word. What a gift it is. Father, may we, as your people today, be filled with thankfulness that we have heard and that we have some grasp of the language of heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.